In 1874, the British government passed a series of laws called the Regulation of Public Worship. A lot of people cared an awful lot about church back then. True. On one side, people wanted more ritual and ceremony. On the other side, they wanted mostly none. In the midst of the battle, one minister, a rector in London at a church called St. George in the East, had stopped a practice whereby people who volunteered in church services could avail themselves of liquor from the rector's cupboard before and after the service. The Reverend King closed the cupboard. We have opened it again. Welcome to the rector's cupboard. Order. So I have this book in my hand. It's called, it's not like a New York Times bestseller. <laughs> it's called Western Asceticism. So catchy title. Mm-hmm. It is about the worst cover. If you were trying to, you know, sell a book I don't by know its if cover. it's the worst. Yeah, I've, I've seen some bad a theology titles. student, that's why. And <laughs> it's from what's called the Library of Christian Classics, Ictux edition. I'm not a fan of the color scheme. By the Westminster Press, something in Philadelphia. I bought this book 23 years ago. For $56? It's soft cover, and it was what? $56 then. Then? That's like $400 now. if now. a book costs that much, you know a couple things. It, it might be specialized. <laughs> If you're uh-huh. buying a textbook or something. And not that many people are buying it. I was thinking very limited print run. Now, oh, hi, Amanda. Yeah, I was just Hello. saying we need to... Hi, Allison. Hi, Todd. Hi, Amanda. Um, so what this book is, is a saying, is a book of the sayings of what in Christian history are called, who are called the Desert Fathers. Yes. Many, many hundreds of years ago. But no mothers. Uh, uh, there mothers were too. desert mothers as there well. Abbas okay. and Amas, yeah. A lot not more, as, lot not more as Abbas popular. than Amas. Yes. <laughs> um... It, it has a few things in this book. It has, I think, the conferences of John Cassian as well, the rule of St. Benedict. These things are actually really well known in Christian history, but and they're compiled in various forms in various books. And But this book, even though, you know, it, it doesn't read like a novel or anything like that, or certainly a textbook. <laughs> you're, you're really doing a great it job. It is too. one of my favorite books Yeah, to sell ever more copies of this. Because for... this, these sayings of the fathers are things that are at times crazy out there they're really interesting people but so much of it relates to who we are and where we're going right now and so as we look forward and part of the hope of this podcast is to look forward in terms of what christian faith is going to look like you know tomorrow and the next day and years down the road and yet we want to hold on to this principle that looking forward doesn't mean you just throw out the past and when I read well, these things, it's actually very detrimental when you forget your past. Yeah, there's so so. I'm going to read. There's to, so much beauty, so much. Like, like they have wisdom. things like on not judging, right? You shouldn't judge. <laughs> so that sounds. But they have a thing like an old man said. No one then say old man. They mean desert father. An old man said, "Judge not the adulterer if you are chaste, or you will break the law of God likewise." For he who said, "Do not commit adultery," also said, "Judge not." Just oh. something simple like that. Um, or another one, um, this one, Abba Agatho said, if an angry man raises the dead, God is still displeased with his anger. In other words, <laughs> oh, in other words, like, I like that. assholes sometimes do good, like good things? interesting or good things. Right? <laughs> do like you have so... the story oh. of the, um, oh shoot. I think one of my favorite ones from there is the story of the, 
The one with the the bag that they bring. Yeah, you so know that's, that one. There's there's various forms of these because I think they get told and retold and changed. Well, I mean, there's lots of oral history in it. Yeah, as well, so this and... one, a guy, uh, one of the, because these were people who were sought after. Their wisdom was sought after. They were not hermits in kind of the assumed understanding of that word. They didn't like shut themselves out from the world. They went out into the desert and often into caves or whatever to battle what they would call the passions. So like, oh, I'm so sinful and I can't. So pretty rigid ideas in in some (laughs) ways. Um, And then they realized, oh, shoot, I still have like all these thoughts and stuff out here in the desert as well. It's not just the city. Um, And then self-imposed exile. Yeah, but they're sought after for their wisdom and even used as judges yeah. In some context. So the story, Allison, you're thinking about is told that a church or some kind of gathering, it might be a civil thing or whatever, but I think it's church in this case, they're going to pass judgment on somebody yeah. in the church, maybe kick them out of the church or whatever. And so this, and they call this Abba to come because he's going to be part of the, and he comes and he's got like a bag of sand on his front or back. It's told differently. Yeah, he's like different. carrying one or something. Yeah, and they're like, what's, what's going, and he's, and there's like a hole in it. So everywhere he walks, there's like sand trailing behind him. And they ask him, like, what's wrong with you? You're crazy. And he's like, no, I, I wear this to remind me that, like, my sin trails ever behind me, right? And I, actually, the one I was going to read to you is, um, oh, I, there's another version of that. I don't have it right in front of me, but where uh, an Abba goes to one of these meetings where they're going to pass judgment on somebody in church, and they do pass judgment. So he's sitting there, I guess, as part of the panel or something that are the judges, right? And uh, they're like, that young man is, you know, he's judged now and condemned, and he has to leave, and... So he stands up to leave and the Abba stands up and walks yeah, out with, with him. him. And they're like, where are you going? What's where are you like? We're not done yet. Where he goes, oh, I thought this was the time when sinners left. <laughs> you know, all these <laughs> kinds of things. And then there's another little saying, uh, some old men said. That's how they start, right? So I like this too, because they're not like... Um, there's a good dose the of humility. The footnotes are rather, you know, like, yeah. like, some old men said. They haven't said, necessarily cited their sources. Yeah, yeah the, cita- the citations <laughs> are. Some old men said, and then it is, quote, quote, if you see a young man climbing up to heaven by his own will, catch him by the foot and pull him down to your, pull him down to earth. It's no good for him. In other words, people can be so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good i guess is the i can idea. see why you enjoy this though because they're kind of smart asses oh yeah it's like facetious there's and this is like right in your passive aggressiveness Todd. and yes. things and oh there's there's, there's some great stuff told the story of an old man living in the desert who asked god to grant that he never fell into a doze when the conversation was edifying but that if anyone spoke with backbiting or hate he should immediately fall asleep <laughs> this is like literally like a guy prayed to God, please God, of... if people start backbiting, let me fall, fall asleep. asleep. Um, I can think of some church services. And so he wouldn't listen to poisonous <laughs> words. He said that the devil strove earnestly to make men speak idle words and assailed all spiritual teaching. I feel uh, like we should read that before like an AGM. Oh my goodness. But everybody's already asleep. <laughs> <laughs> And one of my famous, my famous, one of my famous <laughs> one of ones, your famous oh, one notes. of my favorite ones, and I have it in my mind a lot, actually, you guys might know this, is uh, it, it, there's this scene, because this is always happening. People are going out to find these people in the desert to get their spiritual wisdom, their spiritual guidance, whatever, right? And there's various uh, versions of this story, um, like a, someone would come and they're looking for Abba Moses or whatever, or Abba so-and-so. And they go and they find some old man who's just gardening. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's like digging in this little side of the walk or whatever. And, he's, and they're like, excuse me, old man. Do you know where Father Moses is? And then the guy's like, 
he's an idiot. You don't want to talk to him. And then they go back to the, and, and then they go back and tell the people that sent them like, we looked for him, but we couldn't find him. And they're like, how do you know? Like, how do you? And, and he said, well, we came across this old man and he said, and then like, what did he look like? And they described because that's Alan Moses. Moses. <laughs> like you, uh, and there's a version of that. A brother named Pistus told this story. Seven of us hermits, that's the word they used, went to Abbe Sisuos, who was living in the island of Clistimus. And when he asked, and when we asked him to give us a word, he answered thus, forgive me, I am an ignoramus. <laughs> Is that what we should if call only, the, tech, I, the I just episode? like that. I, forgive me. Forgive yeah. me. I'm an ignoramus. And we're going to, that's who we're talking but to. But I mean, I, I wouldn't say we're that. We're not talking to the I ignoramus. I wouldn't wish to say that about our guest. smart in our episode, yes. He's definitely not an ignoramus. He's a professor. Yes. He was <laughs> yeah. lovely, lovely to talk to. Yeah. Uh, what does it mean to be the servant of all? And an old man answered, to be the servant of all is not to look out for the sins of others, ever to look out for your own sins and to pray to God without ceasing. He further went on different, maybe old, same old man. I don't know. Cause it said an old man was asked uh, by people who said that they'd seen angels. So they came to him and they said like, we've seen angels. And he's like, and they were all impressed by this, right? Cause they supernatural experience. They've mm. seen angels. And he just says to them, uh, you're more blessed if you see your own sin. He wasn't impressed by the angels. This is the sayings of the desert fathers and so uh, our guest today jay warren smith is a professor at duke divinity school a professor of patristics you're gonna say yes right i think so yes uh like that's my understanding ancient, lots of ancient stuff i was and going to say can we define patristics no let's not we do, that. We do. let's not okay we do in the in okay. our interview with <laughs> and uh, with dr smith there is this kind of comforting consoling thing of, as we consider shaky times or things that seem unstable right now mm. looking back so long ago and hearing things that echo and even in kind of their moral instruction that offer us some kind of comfort and some kind of vision of what it means to look forward yeah. if only you know, all of us said we were ignoramuses <laughs> forgive me i am an ignoramus uh. Did you find the current? I for did. Sale? Just if anyone was interested in purchasing. Oh, how much now? Amazon.ca. So these are Canadian funds. Seventy-eight eighty-four. <sighs> I found a rarer one for one of my papers that I wrote. Uh, you can get it hardcover from Amazon for two hundred and ninety-seven dollars. Oh, hardcover. Sayings of the fathers. No, this is on uh, 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 tears of contrition. Uh, mm. This is bearing, actually yeah. Western asceticism. That's yes. same, we should put an image book. of that cover because it is just. People see that cover, they're going to want to buy the book. I have seen significantly worse. Mm. I stand by that. That's true. Anyways, enjoy the interview with <laughs> <you> so <laughs> Warren Smith. Forgive me. <laughs> I am an ignoramus. Oh, bye-bye. Jay Warren Smith, professor of historical theology at Duke Divinity School, is interested in the history of theology broadly conceived from the apostles to the present but his primary focus is upon patristic theology. And if you don't know what that is, we'll explain We'll that. get there. So he has written multiple books, including one on Gregory of Nyssa and Emotion, Augustine. Do you say Augustine or Augustine? Um, I say Augustine. Okay, thank you. Augustine yeah. and Ambrose, History and Virtue, and a book also on the Lord's Prayer as Confession of Faith. He's currently working on, still working on? Or is yes. this, okay, so still not not quite done uh, on a volume for Eerd, Eerdman's publishing that traces the development of theology from the 
apostolic era with Ignatius of Antioch to the high watermark of Byzantine thought with Maximus, Maximus the, the Confessor, Confessor, who we've ah. spoken about earlier. That work is entitled Early Christian Theology, a History. He's teaching at Duke Divinity School and has taught courses, I'll just list a few of them, uh, including the Moral Theology of Ambrose of Milan, Virtue and Virility, that sounds interesting, Christian and non-Christian <laughs> conceptions of masculinity. That could be like a today course, not just a patristic course, but uh, I'm sure that gets there. And uh, general early and medieval Christianity. Thank you so much, Warren, for joining us, Dr. Smith, for joining us today for this conversation. Uh, you and I had the privilege, um, at least I had the privilege, I don't know, was, of uh, having lunch Todd. together in Durham um, near Duke Divinity School, just... Uh, Oh, less than a month ago as we record this. Mm -hmm. And it was fantastic. And uh, Allison, I know... Hi, Allison. Hello, Todd. I know from, uh, from that conversation, so much of our interest in terms of contemporary issues, things that people think are just kind of intractable today and so kind of... Um, you know, they're today's issues. It's but almost like it's novel. Yeah, it's you not. reach back and <laughs> it's like, if only we could listen to some of these people who spoke so many years ago. And so we're really pleased, uh, Warren, that you join us and speak about some of these things. Thanks so much. That's good to be with you. Thank you. Thank you for, for joining us. Uh, and for listeners, we're not being disrespectful. He said we could call him Warren That's instead true. of Dr. Smith. I, know, I always I feel like it. a little bit of tension yeah. with that, but we have permission. Yeah. Um, so... Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Um, let's start our conversation by talking about the broad umbrella of like, what is historical theology? How does it fit into uh, other aspects of theological study, um, into ideas of faith? Like, set us kind of like a little bit of like a box. <laughs> Surely. I mean, historical theology is a form of theology with a historical focus. In other words, um, there are some theologians who would we call constructive theologians, meaning that there's a theological problem or question that they are trying to work out, all right? Mm -hmm. And some of them will do, you know, will use many sources, you know, hopefully scripture, um, <laughs> but also voices in the tradition, mm -hmm. uh, as well as um, as well as just their own insights and experiences. Historical theologians, um, and then you also have people who are what I would call historians of theology. In other words, they're people who want to understand how Christian ideas developed, mm -hmm. right? Okay. The the development of Christian doctrine. The historical theologian is somewhere in the middle. The historical theologian is motivated by theological questions, but their approach to answering them is to examine those, um, those luminaries from the Christian past mm. whose ideas might be the most helpful for our contemporary understanding of those issues. And so, I mean, the same may be done for a systematic theologian, but the historical theologian is going to get into the historical weeds far more than the constructive theologian. But basically, <laughs> it means I get to pick figures like Gregory of Nyssa mm -hmm. or Augustine or Ambrose mm -hmm. to be my conversation partners. And I read their writings very closely and see what insights I can glean from them. Hmm. Hmm. One of the things that we've spoken about in other contexts um, in this podcast and other places is 
Uh, you know those uh, DNA kits? Like, what are they called? Yes. 20, like 23 and Me and there's various kinds. Yes, yes. I've often thought, and, you know, we could, we could like, copyright this together or something. There should be, like, a theological DNA kit <laughs> where where you take somebody and, and either they're, they might be pressing against their understanding of faith that they've grown up with or maybe they're not. Or maybe, but you could do, like, a theological DNA test on people and say, oh, you must experience this all the time. Say, oh, let me tell you why you believe what you yes. believe historically. <laughs> yes. Right. Yes. Because there's often such an assumption that this is just what it means to be Christian. And I just, my might not use the word theology. My belief is Christian belief. That's yeah. it. And so uh, it's so helpful to hear how th- uh, historical theology informs some of this. You're, you must have lights go on for students all the time in this regard. <laughs> They, they suddenly see themselves in, in figures from the past and write, ah, it's like, oh, I didn't just think that up. Or, right. uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, th- this, this has roots. Yeah. I mean, I say that one of the, the two of the greatest mental handicaps are either amnesia or Alzheimer's. I mean, the person who suffers from amnesia uh, lives entirely in the present. They don't know the past. They don't know where they came from, who their parents were, what they, you know, what they were doing an hour ago. Um, the person with Alzheimer's doesn't have a present. That hmm. they just live in the past. Hmm. You ask them, "What did you have for for lunch?" Uh, you know, uh, you know, fifteen minutes ago, and they they can't tell you. Well and I think there are times in which there are churches that have those tendencies, either to have no knowledge of the past. Um, or folks who conversely just sort of live in the past without a, a deep engagement with the present. And one of the things I hope to do as a teacher is to overcome both of those tendencies so that we acknowledge where we came from. I mean, you know, it's sort of the, the words of the prophet, look to the rock from whence you were hewn, right? Go back yeah. to your ancestors, yeah. but you don't live there. You yeah, use so the insights they have to be able to speak uh, to your own circumstance and to, um, you know, more importantly, to the community of which you were a part. That's that's so great. There's so many um, like living reasons to do that, and I think I don't know your experience. There's often an openness to this that as long as people see you're not coming to kind of attack what they think or to but to help, right? That so. With that in mind, there are words, right? Yes. Like when you talk about the patriarchs, <laughs> there, I mean, there are words. There all, are words. All words. When you words. talk about the patriarchs, right, in yes. scripture, that right away is like, oh, patriarchal, that must be. Uh, one of those words might be the one I'm going to ask about now. Who are the patristics? Yeah. It sounds right. like we, you know, is that something we should be against? The patristics? Who are the patristics? <laughs> the term patristic comes from the Latin pater, meaning father. And so patristics focuses on the theologians of the early church. Now, certainly there are women who are, you know, have vital roles in the early church, but patristics generally focuses on the issue of doctrine. And so you don't have many women. Mm-hmm. You have, you know, except, say, for a text like um, the, um, uh, the Martyrdom of Perpetua and Felicitas, you have mm-hmm. very few ancient documents written by women. Now, you have texts about women written by men. I mean, for instance, Gregory of Nyssa wrote the life of his sister, the life of Macrina, right? But one question always is, you know, how much much of that is Macrina and how much of that Mm -hmm. is what 
Gregory's, yeah. the picture Gregory is painting of Macrina for his theological purposes. You know, I mean, I have no doubt that he that she shaped his thought. She certainly knew how to give her brothers a swift kick in the backside when she uh, <laughs> thought they needed to be disabused of some of their, you know, their their love of pagan learning and mm. and love of rhetoric and so forth. Um, but we just don't know. And so, when you're actually talking about the development of Christian doctrine, you're pretty much talking about you know, virtually a men's only right. camp, which is part of the culture and the hierarchy yeah, exactly. of the day and the understanding and yeah thanks um so with that general setting probably one of i mean i don't know how many at least evangelical christians would would know many of the patristics although they may recognize this one was billy graham patristic no okay thanks no <laughs> i mean Warren can confirm okay, this, yeah. but my suspicion is no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no, no. Thank okay. you. He's safely outside okay. that, that, <laughs> that era. So one that I do think that, that many of our listeners may be familiar with is Augustine. And I mean, we have the Augustine-Augustine debate. I've generally learned that in most of my schooling, people have pronounced it Augustine, I and know. that's how you pronounce yeah. it, Dr. Smith. Um, so can you tell us who he is, why he's important, um, as well as like, what, like, I mean, I have some thoughts about him and there's part where like, he's, he's a bit of a polarizing figure. He's got some very positive things and some very perhaps negative things right. about him. Like, can you kind of give us a, a general framework for, for who he is sure. and why he matters? Uh, sure. Well, I mean, as far as the pronunciation goes, my father who, who actually, who wrote a biography of mm. Augustine, his line was, <clears throat> Um, St. Augustine is in heaven. St. Augustine is in Florida. So, you know, that's, that's just the way we, I've never heard I've that. always I can't been told that. <laughs> now, St. Augustine, you all right, Allison? Yeah, she, totally okay. Yeah, Please yeah, continue. Yeah. We assume he's in heaven, but anyway, keep going. St. Augustine lived at the end of the fourth century and about a quarter of the way into the fifth century. <clears throat> he was from North Africa. And he grew up in, his mother was a devout Christian, though something of an eccentric Christian. And he ended up, um, you know, he ended up rebelling against his, his mother's faith. Um, and he went off to study rhetoric. And he was very early on a gifted rhetor rhetorician. He had a mind <clears throat> that could memorize easily, and he had a facility with languages. And of course, if you wanted to rise socially, you studied rhetoric because that allowed you to enter into governmental service or to become, you know, a lawyer. And he ended up becoming a teacher of rhetoric. But in the midst of all of this, he was discontent. And, um, and he knew there was something lacking in his life. And he recounts all of this in one of the classics mm -hmm. of Western literature, The Confessions, which is basically a tell-all autobiography about... Uh, about his coming uh, back to the Catholic Church. And the way I like to, sit, to describe what the Confessions is, it is, when we think of an autobiography, we think of, you know, say a sports figure who's, you know, been around only five years and think that mm -hmm. their life is worth, you know, putting in, you know, 300 pages. <laughs> um, Augustine's autobiography is different than most autobiographies because Augustine is not the hero of his autobiography. Mm -hmm. It's God. It's written as a prayer to God in which he confesses to God both his sins, 
but also he confesses the way in which God was active all throughout his life from the time of his birth uh, uh, well through his baptism, drawing him back to the church. And so in that sense, I mean, he, he's, he's amazingly honest. I mean, this is a man who is a bishop. And so he's talking about, yes, I had this common law wife. Uh, and mm -hmm. yes, you know, these are, uh, I mean, he talks about the sins of his youth. He talks very openly about both his sexual desire, but also his tremendous worldly ambition, which at the end of the mm -hmm. day is in some ways more more damning for his soul than mm -hmm. uh, than his sexual appetite. Mm -hmm. And so that he the fact that he puts all of this out right. there on the table is pretty remarkable. He also talks about that he encountered another religion called Manichaeism. Yeah. Yes. And the Manichaeans were rivals of Catholic Christians in North Africa. And he talks about his debate with them and what initially attracted him to Manichaeism, but also why he ultimately thought that it you know, it didn't. It, it didn't. Um, uh, it didn't have uh, the sound of truth to it, mm -hmm. and so ultimately he gives that up. So I think all of those. I mean, all of those are important. One of the there's a, there's an important work uh, about the modern concept of the self, and people will say that Augustine, in some ways, is the first modern person because he's the first person to be as introspective as he is. Now, that may be something of an overstatement, but it's part of the transparency of Augustine in his autobiography is pretty remarkable. Hmm. And many of his struggles are the same struggles that we have mm -hmm. today. So it, it, you know, it resonates with people, uh, believers and non-believers, throughout, uh, throughout the centuries, which is a remarkable thing for a book to have any sort of staying power like that. It's the yeah. definition of a classic, I guess. <laughs> yeah. But he's also, like, many people who know something of Augustine would know that he's important theologically, like in terms of yeah. helping some key concepts that people believe now can be traced sure. back to Augustine, but not necessarily, I mean you know, not necessarily directly, easily understandable from Christian scripture, but he helped kind of, what are some of those, what are some theological ideas, both, I would, I don't know if positive and negative is the right value statement, but what are some theological yeah. ideas that he did yeah. help with? Yeah, I mean, one of the major issues that, one of the, one of the legacies that undoubtedly Protestants and Catholics have is Augustine's view of grace and free will that emerges. I mean, Augustine, um, when he was a young man, because he, this group of Manichees basically, you know, it called into question just how much free will human beings have. And there was a very fatalistic view hmm. of life. And Augustine, you know, ended up defended God and saying, look, all sin is ultimately voluntary. There's nothing that compels us to be, hmm. um, uh, you know, to commit sin. It's the case of the misuse of our free will. Therefore, sin and evil is on us, not on God. But as he went on, he began to find other problems in other questions about his own life. I mean, why does he feel, you know, ideas and thoughts and images and impulses stirring up in his soul when he didn't bid them? He didn't will them. They just sort of came. They were just there. And, and he 
you know, as he's studying Romans, I mean, he runs across texts like Romans 7, where Paul talks about um, uh, our the law in our members, our in our body, mm-hmm. warring against the law of our mind. And so Augustine's trying to figure out what all of that means. And in the midst of that, he encounters a man by the name of Pelagius. Now, Pelagius was a very holy man, uh, a monk originally from Britain, who is in Rome. And Pelagius believes that God made people and equipped people to be perfect. Hmm. I mean, Jesus said, be perfect even Hmm. as your Father in, in heaven is perfect. And, well, if Jesus tells you to do something, the assumption is you can do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so Pelagius said, look, there's nothing wrong with us. We are able to fulfill all of God's commands. We just need, say, Jesus to give us a good example Mm -hmm. of what we should do. You know, Jesus tells us to do it, and we're capable of doing it. And Augustine raised what's called the doctrine of original sin, in which he says, you know, it's not that simple. It's not simply enough that we know the good and we do the good because sin has had a corrupting effect on human nature. Mm-hmm. And that corruption is that our will is turned in upon ourselves. We are self-centered in a way such that our mind and our will begins with the love of the self rather than the love of God. And as a result, we're not free to turn to God all on our own, but we need God to come to us. We need God to woo us, uh, and therefore we are not able to achieve perfection apart from the work of God to in, that infuses us with grace. And grace does a couple of things for Augustine. First, grace is that display of God's love uh, actively turning our will from ourselves to God. In other words, we're no longer self-preoccupied, but now grace reveals the love and mercy of God, which reorients us from being self-centered to being God-centered. And then grace enables us to live and grow in that knowledge of God that we have. Um, And, you know, And as a result, it is grace that allows us Mm. to grow in a life of holiness. And that holiness for Augustine was love. One of his favorite verses was Romans 5, 5, which speaks of the love of God poured into into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. And Augustine said, you know, who is the Holy Spirit? But the Holy Spirit is the Father's love for the Son and the Son's love for the Father. And therefore, when we are given the gift of the Holy Spirit, we are given God's love. It is God's love dwelling in us. And the Spirit both reveals God's love for us, but that then engenders in us a reciprocal love for God so that we both love God, but we are also able to love our neighbors as God loves us. But all of that is dependent on God's action. So in other words, the life of holiness for Augustine is shifting further and further away Mm. from our activity to the work of God in us. That doesn't mean we're passive, Mm -hmm. but it means that we trust that we can do nothing on our own, but our only hope is what God does in us. 
So that becomes, that's central. But another idea that's connected to that is the idea of predestination. Yes. And then this becomes a particular bone of contention sure between does. those folks yeah. who are Arminians and yes. those who are Calvinists. All right. But it, more than just that. Yeah. But Augustine said, look, that, you know, in in God's inscrutable way, God chooses some people uh, to be saved, to be given this grace so that they may be purified and made worthy of fellowship with God. And there are others, even though God created them, whom God cho- whom God chooses not to give that grace. Mm. All right, and so you have the difference between the elect who receive grace and salvation, and you have those who are uh, who are the damned, whom mm. God has decided for whatever reason, un- un- unknown to us, not to give His grace. Mm. Now, the one thing that Augustine does say is, he says, look, this is this is an idea I got from Scripture. You know, look at Romans. Uh, it's there, and this is my interpretation of that. Mm-hmm. But Augustine says, look, we don't know who's the elect and who's not. And he points to St. Paul, who, before the Damascus Road experience, would think that Saul of Tarsus would become the greatest Christian theologian ever, become, you know, the great apostle to the Gentiles. And yet God somehow took this man and by a sheer act of grace, you know, turned him in to being the apostle that Paul is. And so he would say, look, we don't know who's elect and who's not. Therefore, functionally, we have to act as if everybody is possibly one of the elect. And so, you know, we don't see ourselves as superior to them but we simply recognize that maybe God can use us um, to move this person on to that destiny which God ordained for them. I feel like... That's really good. Yes, I I feel like that part gets left out. (laughs) One could say sometimes through like, you know, the historical filters or like the distillation of stuff, because it sounds like what you're telling me um, or, or, or as you're explaining this, that you know Augustine is is trying to to wrestle and deal with really complicated issues and he's ultimately saying this is what I think it is maybe it is maybe it's not he's also got these rivals that he's trying to you know argue against and 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 you know defeat in in that sense but it it sounds like everything is a little more complicated than than kind of as like through the millennia um, it has kind of come to to be in typical yeah, understanding. Yeah, it gets get harder as we move away from. Yes, because as, as I think said, about here's how what Augustine said, and yeah, like, well, how things, yeah. yeah, like original sin and predestination were explained to me was not how you framed it. So <laughs> there's part where, like, as as I've you know, you know, gone through my own faith journey and realized kind of that some of these concepts kind of trace back to Augustine. It's me a little angry at him um but i haven't really encountered some of the nuance that you're talking about and i think that that it's it's one of those things where i think happens a lot that you get like these reduction kind of like these distillations and it's it's important to remember like the complexity of the people that we're reading it's also true that like as you present that warren the the you're presenting augustine's thinking and writing 
and influence and kind of interpretation of scripture, just as you said. Um, being a professor of historical theology, there are those times, I'm sure you don't, it's like, you're saying what Augustine thinks. <laughs> it doesn't mean that you're saying, <laughs> I agree with Augustine yes. on all these things, or that develop, uh, thought hasn't changed since then, or that thought before then was different, or that people in his own day saw things differently. Like when we're talking about Karl Barth and the concept of the elect, right? This kind of who's elect, who's not. Yep. It's a very, speaking of making this very simplistic way of understanding it, but um, Jesus Christ is the elect, and yes. he's the rejected, and in Jesus Christ all are elect, which is a difference of, you know, how to, how to see these things. And so that brings to mind a question that I had, um, just knowing in, in my limited knowledge of the patristics and Desert Fathers, and when you outline Augustine's um, perspective on predestination, one of the things that I've encountered as I've looked at the Desert Fathers and others is that there's so many surprising things they're just great little stories like we talk about the story oh. of, of we talked about this at when we we're having lunch that um you know that thieves thieves come and steal stuff from the the cave or the cell where where some desert father lived and he comes wandering back from you know being in the city or something or, or adjudicating some dispute and he sees these thieves stealing some of his meager possessions or most of his meager possessions and he run towards runs towards them and basically says like as and they run away and he basically says like you forgot these things like you you didn't you know here have these and there's this like this story of how you your heart shouldn't be attached to things and how you treat other people and so there's just all these surprising moments little ones like that but there's also surprising surprising moments theologically where, where a uh, somebody like myself reading it, and you must see this in your students and in your own investigation as well, uh, where you're reading a patristic desert father or mother and you're like, oh, they saw this? Like they, their view was this? Like that seems so progressive to use a word or forward thinking or it's not the standard way that we've understood it um what are some of those either little stories or examples of things that people listening might go oh they're not just they're not just ancient they might yeah. in some ways they were ahead of their times and they might be ahead of our times yeah i mean they're one of the things that i see the historian's job is Allison, on your point, is to complicate pictures, yes. and that is to add nuance. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I get, I get paid to sit around reading Augustine, so I'm supposed to develop sort of the, the complexities and the nuance, uh, so that, yeah, so that folks don't create, don't operate just with stereotypes. Yeah. And then, to me, is because ultimately, I don't think the academy exists for itself, but for the church. Mm. My goal is to help folk, help my students make a connection between what's going on in the fourth century and what's going on in the 21st century. Mm. Um, I think, I mean, I'll give you, I'll give you a couple of examples. One example that is, it's in many ways an outlier, and that's, it, that's very sad to say, mm. but Gregory of Nyssa has this Easter homily that he preaches. And he says, you know, what's going on today? Well, one of the things that, because it's Easter, uh, the, the slaves are being given the day off. And then he starts pushing this and saying, well, why are they given the day off? Because Easter, Jesus' resurrection, points to the resurrection when the saints will be raised. And we will uh, be resurrected, we will have new bodies, we will enter into the kingdom of God, the, the climax of the new creation. 
And he says, and when that happens, there will be neither you know, master nor slave. And the slaves will be liberated. And all of us will be liberated from sin. So if we're willing to liberate people today as a sign of what we hope will come at the resurrection, why don't we just liberate slaves, period? And he really presses and says, <laughs> you know, in their wonderful rhetorical background, he says, you know, today in some ways is happier than the resurrection day, because today there's still hope for some of you. Um, you have the chance to act on uh, this call. You have the chance to free your slaves. But on the day of resurrection, you're, you won't have that hope. You will be judged according to what you did. You know, and not only, I mean, Gregory's not pulling punches here. No, clearly. But also, it's, it's a witness that says, and this is part of what attracted me to Gregory, the Christian life is not just about getting to heaven. The Christian life is about participating in a reality that Jesus inaugurated a new reality, a new creation that he inaugurated by his death and resurrection. And so if the kingdom of God is what we hope for, you know, if that is our hope when at the end of time when we are raised and Christ is Christ returns, then why aren't we living that way today? And so the Christian life for Gregory is living in the present in accordance with what we hope to come in the future. And to me, that connects the future with the present in a way that I think avoids religion simply becoming the opiate of the masses. Uh, it's not a drug, but it is in fact calling us to a higher life. You know, But as far as you ask for a story, say from the Desert Fathers, one of my favorite ones is this, and it, it, it deals with the whole problem. You have people living in religious communities, and a community has to have people who are overseeing the community. And so there has to be a certain level of discipline but the problem is, how do you discipline, how do you create discipline within the community without judging people, without putting people on the defensive? And one of the examples, therefore, is the story of a young novice. And the novice has come and he's assigned a mentor. And the mentor comes to him every week to sort of see how he's doing, what sort of spiritual growth he's making. And... Um, you know, he says to the young man, you know, are you, you know, uh, you know, how are you, how are you doing? The guy says, fine. He says, well, are you having any spiritual struggles? <laughs> oh, no, I'm just doing fine. And, and, and finally, his mentor has just had it. Everything seems just to be rosy for this young guy. And, and, you know, the mentor is, you know, has been around enough to know that no monk is just fine. Right. There are always battles. <laughs> And so he goes to the Abba, who's, who's overseeing the community. He says, look, I can't get through to this guy. Can you come and talk to him? And so the Abba comes to this novice and, you know, and says, how are you doing? The young man says, I'm doing fine. <laughs> and so the Abba starts pressing and he says, well, you know, do you ever have sexual thoughts when you dream? And the young man says, you know, oh, I'm fine. I, I don't have such thoughts. <laughs> and the Abba looks at him and says, that is remarkable. Because, you know, I have sexual thoughts all the time. 
And the young man goes, well, now that you mention it, I do have those thoughts. And what happens there is that the Abba gets the young man to confess, but he does it by making a confession himself so that they are both being vulnerable and honest together. And by being vulnerable and honest together, it creates a space by which the young man knows he's not going to be condemned, he's not going to be judged, but he's going to be called into the truth by the confession of truth coming from this Abba. And to me, that's that's a wisdom I wish I had. Yeah. Uh, I think it's really hard to live out because there are people, if you, the moment you make a confession, they will exploit it and jump all over you. But at the same time, ultimately, it's God's judgment that matters alone. And that's what the wisdom of this Abba, that the wisdom this Abba had, which gave him the freedom to be vulnerable in the face of this, you know, wet behind the ears young man. It's it's amazing, right? Because um, knowing some of the work of Desert Fathers and such and reading various collections of sayings or whatever, a lot of, a lot of my experience in reading is you come across these sayings or these little stories like the one you just uh, related to us. And there's such a presence of, like, Allison, you would know this too, like, the emphasis on humility. Oh, the yeah. The emphasis on, you know, judge not. Like, we should each yeah. look to our own sins and never judge the other or to, you know, this is how. And some of them are so simplistic. Uh, uh, compunction, right? Like a, yeah. a, a, a sorrow over your own um, your own sin or struggle or whatever, right? That. But the other, the other thing this story brings up, and I know, Allison, you've read some of this and studied this as well, is these, let's say, guys, because a lot of them Mostly. were guys, but there were desert mothers as well. Uh, like today, I would mention as well, um, seem to have like interesting ideas around sexuality or a lot of the stories about sexuality or lust. or right? Like, I'm going to put my finger in this candle flame because I'm having these lustful thoughts or something. That uh, So that brings up one of your... Uh, one of the courses that I see in the listing that you teach is on masculinity and virility. Um, And so, so I know it's not directly on sexuality, but concepts around that. Uh, Tell us a little bit about some of the conceptions of in, in the patristics or the desert fathers, what does it mean to to be masculine? Uh, How does it relate to some of the conversations that are very contemporary today? Yeah. Um, I, I need to explain where the course's title came from. Um, the, you know, the, the course is Virtue and Virility, Christian and Non-Christian Conceptions of Masculinity. Yeah. And the idea is that the word for virtue in Latin is virtus. Uh, and it comes from the Latin word vir, V-I-R, which is the word for man, meaning a male. Right. Therefore, virtus, virtus was the quality of a man. Right. And so, I mean, I had a, wow. a teacher who refused to let us translate it virtue because it sounded, you know, too Victorian, a woman's virtue. Uh, uh, no, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about, you know, masculine qualities. Uh, okay. And so we started off by reading a text like um, the, the Iliad. And there you see one of the classic heroes. An, I mean, Achilles embodies the virtues of the warrior prince. And the point is that the sort of virtue that Achilles embodies as the warrior prince is very different 
than the sort of virtues that Jesus embodies as the Prince of Peace. All right. Now, this is not necessarily a division between pacifists and non-pacifists, um, or just war people, um, but rather it, the purpose of the Course is to draw out a sense of how different the view of what it meant to be a man was for Christians as opposed to the general view in their in the ancient world. And one of the key differences, you already brought up the word humility. You know, I mean, in the ancient world, you know, you were expected to talk about your accomplishments. I mean, the old the old saying, you know, it ain't it ain't you know, it ain't bragging if it's true hmm. was very much the sense. And, you know, and you were expected to be judged by, you know, telling of all your exploits really? and your uh, your accomplishments. This is, I mean, why did people very often preserve all of their letters? You know, hmm. our email servers do it for us, yeah. but we don't <laughs> intentionally do this. They did it so that future generations would see their writings and be suitably impressed, etc. Whereas the Christian language, very often, and especially among the monks, they picked up Jesus' words where he says, you know, some people are eunuchs by birth. Some people um, are, um, you know, are made eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. Now, I mean, a eunuch would, you know, in, in Jewish context, it would be someone who would be deemed to be unclean. Mm -hmm. But the idea was that the the eunuch represents the one who's entered into a life of celibacy because the celibate life was seen as an anticipation of the angelic life that we will have at the resurrection. I mean, it's mm -hmm. Jesus' famous encounter with the Sadducees and the debate about the resurrection. And he says, in the resurrection, you know, those found worthy will neither marry yeah. nor given in marriage, mm -hmm. but they will be like the angels. Mm -hmm. And so the idea was strongly that, um, that our eschatological existence, how we will live at the resurrection, is not one in which we are divided between male and female. I mean, mm -hmm. we'll still look like men and women, but that, you know, sex won't be a part of the, our future life. And therefore, if it's not part of our future life, then a way to live into that reality is by pursuing mm. a life of celibacy. And there's also great suspicion of, I mean, there's there's considerable suspicion of the way in which sex and sexual desires are perverted by our disordered love. I mean, Augustine, mm. Augustine often gets a bad rep, uh, <laughs> reputation because because he is, you know, he's conscious of and talks freely about just how much sex intrudes in upon our ordinary thoughts. But one of the things that's distinctive about Augustine is that he believed Adam and Eve would have had sex in paradise, um, except it would have been, it would have been sexual relations that would have been thoroughly ordered by reason to the love of God, so that even the love of God would control their passions, uh, such that they're not just acting out of lustful desire for pleasure, but uh, a desire for each other that supports each other and that enables them to, um, uh, to you know, to, uh, to bring the next generation into the wow. world. This idealization of even, even that, that, that was such a, yeah, there's, there's so many 
stories around these things. Yes. Desert Fathers, right? That, yeah. No, and then you get like some interesting kind of almost projections that, I mean, m- I, I had very little, like, I, I took a course on, on early Christian history. So, like, I, please, please correct me. Um, but I, I did see several things in there that some of this, this um, almost like understanding of how prevalent um, sex, you, as you say, like intrudes into into our lives, um, ended up kind of being projected though back onto women, and they were you know associated with being demons, with being you know seductresses. There's, there's something wrong with them. It's, it's it's yeah. it's not that the women are demons, but it's that the demons take the form of women. I feel like that. <laughs> I, I understand yeah. the distinction, but I do feel as like, a woman <laughs> that distinction. Like is, it yeah. might be easily misused to just be like, "Well, that person who looks like a woman, she might be a demon. She's taken the form of a, like the demon's taken a form of a woman." I feel like there there were parts of how these these struggles that that these monks are going through. Some of like the repercussions of that were a little problematic in my perspective. Is it so much, Warren, that um, one of the things that I, in, in my study of this, was that, that I have in my mind is, I'm not saying this is accurate, but you know, going out into the desert away from the cities and whatever to, to kind of battle the passions, these, these things, that, and, and lust is one of the passions yes. that they are often battling, right? That, and then whether it's ancient or contemporary, in, in that kind of understanding, there is often some kind of misunderstanding or blame that's placed upon that thing or person or whatever that seems to be igniting this passion. Can you tell us more about that? They're, so they're, they're writing, they're speaking, they're adjudicating things, right? They're known as wise, but then they're sharing about their own battles as well, mm-hmm. right? Um, how, how do you hear some of those stories? Um, I mean, I think, I think the, the two things to be said. The first is, the funny thing, when you actually read the, the sayings of the Desert Fathers, um, William Harmless was a great student of desert Christianity, um, and he wrote a book by that title. A point he made was that, that far more than talking about sex, they talk about anger. Mm. And that anger, especially if you're living in a monastic community, you're with, you know, in close quarters with other people who are also wrestling with their sins. And so, you know, it's easy for, you know, in such close proximity for one to become angry with one's brother. And that anger very quickly leads to judgment, you know, yes. and it just spirals. And you, therefore, you were distracted. Instead of looking at the log in your own eye, you focus on the speck in your brother's eye, right? So, I mean, so that's that's the first thing to be said. I mean, I think... I think, hmm. I think, frankly, in our period after the the sixties and seventies and sexual liberation, mm-hmm. um, you know, the thing that people immediately think of when they you know encounter a priest or a nun is mm-hmm. the celibacy issue, mm-hmm. and so that's sometimes. I mean, sometimes it can be a real issue, and sometimes there are other temptations which are even more difficult mm-hmm. to yes, deal with. Yeah, right. You know, and and to, to Allison's point, I mean, you're absolutely right that I think there is, and you you can find this both in patristic texts and in later texts, where you know where you know the woman is seen to be 
um, uh, is seen to be the source of temptation. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and I think that sort of move is wrong. Right. But you also then see the point, look, the desire is in you. Yeah. It arises from you. Right. It's your soul that's got to get discipline, that's got to be corrected. I mean, there's a wonderful hmm. passage in Ambrose in which he says, you know, you, you complain about being, you know, uh, being tempted, but it's your eye that goes looking for the object of temptation, you know. And there, I mean, I think, and Augustine's helpful there, that's a case of the will, the, the, uh, the habitual orientation toward uh, toward seeking pleasure that sort of has one, you know, constantly looking for bright, shiny things. I mean, good heavens, just look at what happens. I mean, and if no one knows this better than, you know, the people who program the algorithms that run social, yeah. uh, social media, yeah. you know, I mean, if you've looked at something, it's surprising yeah. how quickly that's going to be a repeated pattern. Yeah. Because they know what to, what will catch your eye, you know. Yeah, amazing, um, yeah. And so there's so there's that question, you know. It's it, it at the risk of sounding simple, you know that you know be careful little eyes what you see. Yep. And the sense is what you see takes you take into the soul. Uh -huh. And so there's that balance between being you know exercising uh, care for where your eyes wander, but also then. Um, being conscious that ultimately it is your own disordered love, which mm -hmm. is the source of the lust, which perverts that natural good that God created, mm -hmm. whether that natural good is a person or an action. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I'd love to give you an opportunity to help, uh, you know, inform our construction of another one of the patristics, which we've already talked about just a little bit, uh, Gregory of Nyssa. Um, can you tell us a little bit what some of his ideas are and some of like the big like theological concepts that, you know, we've inherited or maybe that we should be picking up on uh, yeah. from him? Yeah, I mean, Gregory lived, say, a generation or two before Augustine, though they overlapped in time. Uh, Gregory of Nyssa was also trained in rhetoric. He lived not in uh, North Africa, but he lived in Asia Minor. And Gregory was very influential in the development of the doctrine of the Trinity. But I think one place where one of, one of his contributions that I think is, is really impressive is his understanding of perfection. I mean, like all the, the fathers, he embraced the idea that Jesus said, be perfect. And so what does perfection look like? But one of the things that he said is perfection comes by participating in God's nature. And it's the language from 2 Peter 1.4, which speaks of being partakers of the divine nature. And the idea is, what is God's ultimate goal for us? But that we should be divinized, that we should take mm -hmm. on divine qualities or divine characteristics. Mm -hmm. And you see it, for instance, say in Paul's letter to the Corinthians chapter 15, when he's talking about the resurrection. I mean, notice, you know, what happens in the resurrection, but the idea that we who are mortal mm -hmm. put on immortality, mm -hmm. we who are corruptible put on incorruption. Well, Immortality and incorruptibility are not human properties. Mm. They're properties of God. 
Therefore, what we hope for in the resurrection is to become like God. Not meaning that we become omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, mm -hmm. but that we are partakers of the qualities of God. But one of the wonderful things about Gregory was he said, one of the aspects of God is that God is infinite. God is not a, a bodily creature who's bounded in space and time. And therefore, if God is infinite, and infinite in wisdom, power, and goodness, then that means, you know, our finite minds can never comprehend God. We can never get our minds around God. We can never know God in God's totality. Mm -hmm. Therefore, he says, there is always going to be something more of God to discover. Therefore, he picks up the language from Philippians 3, in which Paul says, I have not yet attained perfection, but nevertheless I am straining forward, stretching out toward the high prize of the upward call of Christ. And so Gregory said, the Christian life is an eternal participation in God, in which we are eternally being remade in the image of God. And one of the things that's so powerful about this is it answers the question, at least for me, that troubled me in adolescence. Why won't we get bored in heaven? You know, <laughs> I mean, you know, heaven's unending, so why aren't we going to get bored? And Gregory's answer is we never will get bored because we will never see all there is to see of God. And in fact, the more of God we see, the more beautiful and lovable we recognize God to be. And when that happens, our mind becomes purified. And the more pure our minds, the more of God we are able to see. So essentially, God will continually reveal new dimensions of God's infinite goodness to us for all eternity. And to me, that's a pretty powerful thing at two levels. Morally, it means that, you know, we can never sit back and say, oh, well, I've become virtuous. That's all there is mm, to it. Yes. You know, no, there's always ways in which we can grow in greater degrees of God-likeness. And it also means that God will always give us a gift of himself, which will be eternally interesting. Wow, goodness. There's so much there. And, and yeah. again, back to the <laughs> fact that there's so many places where people hearing this would go like oh so it goes back that far right these are people who helped interpret these ideas and um you mentioned already um a couple of books and works and one i think william harmless desert christianity um, uh -huh. what are some desert christians desert christians thank you what are some uh what are some other books that people should could could read or sources they could track yeah. down um if they were interested in pursuing um getting a little closer to the yeah. source here yeah, I think I think one of one of the best writers about uh, early Christian theology is a former professor at the University of Virginia, Robert Wilkin, and he he's written a number of beautiful books. One of them is called "The Spirit of Early Christian of Early Christianity," maybe the spirit of early Christian thought. Anyway, it's short, and its chapters are thematically oriented or arranged, so that he'll tackle different issues and show how various early Christian theologians thought about X topic. 
whether it's grace or the Trinity or the incarnation or whatever. And it, as I said, I think it's very accessible. He also did a book called, if you're more interested in the history, the first thousand years. Another book that, I mean, if you're particularly interested in the area of uh, Christ, a book which talks about the history of Christian views of who Jesus was, and specifically, what does it mean to say that he is truly God and truly man? Mm. Um, and that's Brian Daly. Brian Daly wrote a book called Seeing God, which talks about Christology. Another figure, um, and I'm going to blank on the titles of his books, okay. but is a man by the name of Hans Borsma. Oh, of course. Yeah, he's taught out here. Right, yeah. right. You know, and Hans has talked about uh, the idea of participation. What does it mean when Second Peter says we are partakers of the divine nature? And he also talks about Scripture as itself being and presenting an image of God uh, that I think is very powerful. So those are just some oh, of the figures so I think are, to me, superb writers, and I read their books and I think, oh, I wish I'd written that. <laughs> Speaking of which, <laughs> yes. you are working on a book right now. Um, yes. And uh, so I, I think I gave the title, if it's still the title, Early Christian Theology of History. Tell us about that work before we ask our... Yeah, it, it, it's the most boring title you can imagine, <laughs> but it's thoroughly Googleable. Yeah, and exactly. So, right. you know, <laughs> so, so my publisher, that, that, that matters to my publisher. Uh, anyway, basically what it tries to do is look at the history of the development of Christian theology from about uh, the end of the first century to uh, the seventh century. I actually go up to John of Damascus, and I cover, you know, all the major themes. I mean, there's a whole section on the development, essentially the doctrine of the Trinity, mm. um, as well as how we understand who Christ is. But I also look at, say, you know, theories of grace and free will, as well as, um, um, you know, who were the apologists and what was their view of the relationship between the church and the larger Greco-Roman mm. world mm. in which they lived? So I mean, it covers uh, it covers a wide variety, and it's it's ultimately my view is it's a book that I hope both for students but also for the interested layperson will give some real examples from yeah. the writings of the uh, of the early church. Uh, you sort of you give you get my explanation, but they're beautiful prose. I have that's so, well, that's so good. <laughs> it's a and great you're combination. So good at explaining the. Um, do you have a target release date, or is there a date set yet, or no? Um, I'm, I mean, next year, uh, 2025, okay. will be the 17, 1700th anniversary of the Council of Nicaea, ah. which drafted the Nicene Creed. Um, and so I'm, I'm hoping that it will be out by then. That's awesome. Great anniversary. Thank yeah, you. I was just saying, it's a bit of a particular <laughs> class that's going to get that anniversary. Yeah, yeah, yes, exactly. Which I mean, that's you what everybody's are in. thinking about next year. Yeah, next year. I just, it's on my calendar. Um, before we before we officially wrap, we've got one question that we always ask guests. But firstly, I'd like to express my gratitude. Thank you so much for this conversation. I feel like my own exposure to the patristics, to the early like desert fathers and mothers, I'm always so, I am so grateful and refreshed to have people kind of illuminate these sources yes. that I haven't had a lot of interaction with because they feel so contemporary. And it's one of those kind of almost like 
misconceptions con- yeah. that because somebody was writing and because they, there are large differences between, you know, yeah. how people in the first century, uh, you know, lived and how we live now, but the amount that actually transcends those distances, it's actually so beautiful. And I've really appreciated the times when I've been able to have people kind of help bridge those divides for me. So I'm really grateful mm-hmm. for, for this conversation and for the work that you do. Um, and I'd That's love, a pleasure. <laughs> I'd love to end on our kind of ultimate question, which is what right now is giving you hope? Like it could be in your work, it could be personal, but like what, like you seem like a very upbeat guy. <laughs> this is my first interaction with you, but Both Todd, of has, my interactions have Todd been has spoken upbeat, very, yeah. very highly. And he was really excited for this conversation. And what, what right now are you, where are you finding hope? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's good. And I'm glad I convey a hopefulness because there's a lot that weighs heavy on my soul right now, mm-hmm. whether it's about the state of the country, the state mm-hmm. of the world, the state of the church. Uh, um, but I think, I mean, at, at the risk of sounding cliche, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's John Wesley's statement, best of all, God is with us. Mm-hmm. So that's, I mean, it, the doctrine of God's unchangeability, yeah. that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And that, therefore, his love and his plan for creation has not changed no matter what a mess we've made of things. And and along with that goes the sense our our God is not the God of deism. Our God is a God who, if he created out of love, is active. And so I can expect that God is involved in my life and involved in our in, in not just my life, but the life of all creation ultimately being guided by his wisdom to move it to some good. Mm. I don't see that good always, and sometimes right. I can mm. be pretty blind to it. But at least knowing who God is gives me a, gives me confidence that that ultimately his will will be accomplished. And that's, you know, you know that's, that's the thing that keeps me going. Yeah, it's so hopeful. And uh, as you relate that response, and as Allison, you know, when you were speaking before, this response, um, the word that I still have in my mind there is that as in company with these people who've mm-hmm. come so far before us, right, mm-hmm. and talking about, like, the heaviness of your heart at times, given the state of the country, where you know, United States, where you are, but you could say other places too, yeah. given the state yeah. of the country and the world, that heaviness of heart. These stories are, I, I think I was experiencing this in what you were both saying, and I probably because it's what I've experienced in reading many of these things, these people, they are consoling at times because you look at the state of their world (laughs) and the state of their hearts and there is a consolation that comes with this higher hope. So thank you so much. You have been that for us and you will continue to be and we will pursue these things and for sure buy your book um, on the anniversary. Yes, (laughs) to celebrate as I was entirely intending to do. We've booked it's been wonderful to be with you. Thank you so much. We look forward to talking again. Take care. Rector's Cupboard is a production of Reflector Project and is hosted and produced by Todd Weeb, Allison Williams, and Amanda Mina. Our cupboard master is Ken Bell. Rector's Cupboard is made possible by the generous support of donors. Check out rectorscupboard.ca for past episodes, events, and how you can help fund the podcast. You can also support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, which helps other people find us. Thanks for listening.